you're looking for fit, as in cultural fit. And that comes from largely people, in order to love what they do, they need to feel that they're in a company which they, they feel aligned with, so that they're actually believing what it's doing. Uh, and there is something about them, i.e. the individual and the company, that really overlaps. And therefore, it becomes a natural fit. And, and I think that last one has become increasingly important over the last 10 years. Hello and welcome to the Leader Insight series, the platform designed to uncover the secrets to career and business success and gain real insight from inspirational figures across the food and drink industry. I'm your host, Jonathan O'Hagan, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Mark Cox. Now, Mark is the founder of the company Spirit and the creator of the philosophy and approach he calls the business case for love. For the past decade, Mark's been hired by CEOs and leadership teams across the globe to help them create real behavioral change. Some of these organizations include McLaren Automotive, West Cornwall Pasty Company, and Crew Clothing, to name just a few. Mark helps organizations understand what their company stands for and what makes it different. Through Mark's unique approach, he facilitates organizations to create authentic company values a sense of purpose and set of beliefs that in turn results in truly memorable experiences for customers and high levels of employee engagement, which as we know, has huge benefits to the bottom line. Finally, Mark is the author of the much acclaimed and superb book, The Business Case for Love, where Mark generously shares the secrets of how you can get your company bragged about in today's ever competitive world. Mark, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. How are you? Well, I'm fine, Jonathan. Thanks very much for inviting me. Uh, well, fine is a is an interesting description at the moment, isn't it? As we as we wait for the great release and the ability to get yeah. out and about a bit more. Yeah, it's often a loaded question these days. How are you? You know, given the current circumstances, and to give context to listeners, it's right at the end of March. So we were just talking off air there, weren't we? That there's a sense of optimism in the air. I don't know if you share that, Mark. We feel like we're close now, aren't we? Yes, we are. And I think the the year has been a long one. But I think, you know, I personally feel that the last couple of weeks, people are starting to think through from a much more optimistic perspective. I, I think the, the interesting thing is that virtually every every beer garden is booked out for, you know, the next six weeks come <laughs> April. And I just think there's just going to be yeah. an explosion of stuff. You know, people are just, I think lockdown three has been, very tough. And if lockdown one actually coincided with good weather and, you know, and obviously going into the, the, the warmer weather, obviously we've all been through a really tough January and February. And I think people are just exhausted. I'm exhausted yeah. by it. And, you know, I just think you, you, you're trying to grapple with a, a number of unknowns, but I think equally you just want to be able to start to, to, to look forward. I mean, obviously it's exposed a lot of good and bad in 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 people's behavior and companies behaviors which i think itself is an interesting point yeah yeah no i agree and you mentioned about pubs there mark i'd, I'd love at some point to see the insight or the data if someone's going to do it around how many people have booked to visit to the pub ahead of maybe booking a haircut that would tell us a lot about the british uh, <laughs> psyche wouldn't it well 
Well, if you, yeah, I mean, my, my, my haircut, given the fact I've got nothing on top, but I mean, there's an awful lot around the edges. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I, had, I definitely have this kind of Wurzel Gummidge scarecrow look now. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Mark, I've been uh, looking forward to having a chat with you and having read your book and, and clearly done my research on you. I've got a sneaky feeling, you know, this episode is definitely going to include the most references to love. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> I hope so. Uh, well, no, it, it will do. And it's good, I mean, to give a reference point, the fact that it's your, your wife's 40th birthday. Or should I say that? Or she's going to get very upset. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, she won't mind at all. <laughs> a couple of days ago. So a, a lot of love for you two. Yes, I think it, it's interesting because, you know, 12 years ago when I started the company Spirits, I mean, I, I think using the word love was pretty divisive. You know, in, in the early days, I mean, more than once I was asked to find a different word <laughs> to explain what I was talking about. But I think the good news is that it, it, it's people have started, it, it resonates more and more. And, and perhaps particularly after this last year where the love, care and empathy that, that has been shown in good parts throughout the communities it's brought that emotional side of the human relationship to the fore and, and therefore business has got to adapt and we'll talk about this later on but I think there are there are real examples of companies that have got it right and real examples of companies that have got it wrong and that really doesn't comes down to leadership yeah yeah well said Mark well said and listen you've got a fascinating background um, for anyone who's not had the pleasure of connecting with you Mark give, give us a brief insight if you will to your your career give us a quick sort of potted history of your background well it's a career in three parts and so part one was advertising for anybody that watched the Mad Men series my advertising career was about 10-15 years after that series was set but I did work for an agency that's headquarters were in Madison Avenue so in, in my in my early days I was off to uh, I was off there a couple of times and it, it was still pretty true to life the advertising days of the 1980s so so that was my first career and then I went into marketing for British home stores uh, which was actually short-lived but was probably one of the turning points in how I thought and actually ironically although I didn't realize it at the time it was it laid the seeds for the foundations of what I believe in today. And then the last third, has I've always essentially worked for myself since then, either as a partner in a, in a design, well, a branding agency, where the output was branding and brand communications, or the last 12 years or so, uh, Company Spirit, my own company. Uh, and that was because actually I just became more and more interested in people and therefore the outputs I was starting to enjoy and guess uh, resonate more with was less the brand communication side, but more the people, the cultural change side, which is why I'd set up the company spirit. Yeah, interesting. And and as someone with a wealth of experience of the UK retail scene market, I suppose I can't not ask, you know, for your thoughts on what do you think the future holds for the high street then? It's clearly going through some turbulent times. But yeah, what's your predictions for the high street in the future? Well, if anybody who knows me or certainly read the book, I, I'm highly critical of, of retail uh, bosses from the last 10, 12 years. And so actually, I'm actually feeling really positive because uh, the dinosaurs have gone or are going in terms of leadership. And what I mean by that is 
we've seen so many businesses that just have ended up focusing on product and price. You know, it's just been a transactional experience for both the employees, like the people working for the company and the customers. And those companies have really been found out. And there's a sad roll call of companies over the last, that have gone bust over the last 12 years. Obviously, the last year has shown, has seen Debenhams and Arcadia go. And I think what that's doing is actually, it's ended the last hurrah of poor business leadership that, that was very much stuck in an old way of working. So I'm actually really positive because on the flip side of that, it's giving opportunities for mm. companies that are actually much more focused around the customer experience, much more focused around the mm. employee experience, much more focused around actually the basics of retailing, which is let's have a clear point of difference. You know, let's actually really work hard on understanding what our product stands for, understanding how our product works. How can we make the experience of buying enjoyable? How can we do something that is focused around the way that we need now rather than what we were needing 10, 15 years ago? So I'm positive, which is the irony. And I'm really pleased that the shakeout has happened because there is no defence for toxic behaviour in business. And unfortunately, I think a lot of UK retailing had toxic leadership. It was very what I call male, very egotistical, very about me. And people have been found out. Yeah, I'd love to pick your brains on that whole leadership piece, Mark, which I know we'll get into, but it's lovely to hear that actually, if I'm hearing you correctly, there's an optimism you hold around UK retail. Because you're absolutely right. When I think of some shopping experiences I've had marked certain stores they've been bloody awful if I'm honest with you you know they're not enjoyable experiences they don't motivate you to go out shopping in the same way that certain other experiences in life do and I think you're absolutely right it's about creating those customer experiences and again I know we'll probably talk about this later but you reference around not necessarily looking at your competitors but look at best in class you know from other walks of life but start with that customer experience in mind so just touching on the pandemic briefly Mark clearly it's been devastating for many. Do you think it's created this opportunity for certain retailers, businesses to reinvent themselves, you know, create this more compelling shopper experience? I think what it's shown, uh, and there's a phrase I've used for many years, which is you're either different or discount. (laughs) I like that. But I I think it's brought it home because I think you are. You're either clear about what you stand for and different, or you end up trading on price, discounting. And my views are that I, th- I think those in the middle are those that are going to be most hit or have been most hit. Perhaps the middle is the wrong phrase. Those who are vanilla and bland are the ones that are suffering the most. And those that, I mean, just to give you two little examples, I suppose, one at the big level and one at the tiny level. So everybody talks about retail is dead. Well, has anybody actually said that to Ikea? You know, is retail dead for Ikea? Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, it's a company that did $41 billion of turnover in 2019, which is not bad for a company that was started 80 years ago in a very small Swedish town. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got these young or youngish upstarts or disruptors. And one of my favorites is Qubits. Qubits is this... They make glasses and sunglasses, and, but they are 
absolutely, to my mind, what a good retailer should be. They're very much about product and product design. They're very much about, they've actually completely understood how online and the retail side works. The founder has got a clear ethos uh, and a set of beliefs. The, the people who work for them clearly love what they do and are good at what they do and, and know their product. You go into a store and the first thing they do is, which is a bit freaky, is look at your face, you know, and, and they kind of know what glasses will fit with your face and aren't afraid to say, you know, no, that doesn't work because they know what they're talking about. And therefore, the mindset of a company like that is always focused around training their people, giving them the comf confidence in product knowledge. And therefore, but they're focused around the, the customer experience and they're doing really well. Yeah, it's giving the customer what they want as well, Mark, which clearly has changed over the years. I mean, it reminds me of my early career, Mark, when I used to work for the Dixon Store Group, you know, and actually we were all trained. Cracky, you kept oh, that quiet. <laughs> many, many years ago. <laughs> yeah. But we were all trained to, you know, within, I think it was something like within the first two minutes, make contact with a customer, ask them, did they need any help or make some kind of frivolous interaction. Now, the customer didn't want it. We felt uncomfortable doing it. It wasn't an enjoyable experience for anyone, yeah. but it was almost forced upon. And actually, there was a real, looking back, there was a real lack of actually, is this what the customer wants or needs? And yeah, yeah I suppose coming back to your point, it's about creating the customer insight first, understanding what they really want, and then working back from there. I mean, one of the things I did back in the day when you could physically go out is one of, one of my ways of working with my clients was to take their literally to take their job hat off and put their customer hat on. And, you know, whether it was using London or Stockholm or other places I've been to, and actually put people through a series of experiences back to back. And what was always fascinating is that people could walk into somewhere and within seconds, they would know whether it was a good or a bad experience because they could feel it, particularly when you'd walk into a place and if you talk to the team there or the staff or the employees working there, you could tell almost instantly whether they believed in the company, whether they loved what they did, whether they knew what they were talking about, or whether they were slightly doing what you were doing in your Dixon's days, which were just going through the motions. The reason why I did that, putting people through a series of custom experiences, it then made them think about what they were doing as a company in terms of their own customer experience. And my whole belief has always been is through the experience is actually you gain insight. And that's the key thing. Yeah, interesting. And intrigued to know, Mark, are you anticipating customer priorities have changed in the last 12 months? You know, because there's there's talk about people certain people having a bit of apprehension getting back out and again into shops and society. What's your thoughts? Do you think priorities have changed for customers? I think there's going to just be an explosion of just wanting to get out. I mean, however well Tesco has done or somewhere like that, you know, let's have a change of scene. People just want to get out and, and shop. Even dear old WH Smith might pick up a few sales as a result. <laughs> what I do see, and I drive on a fairly regular basis to where my daughter lives, which is in Peckham Rye. And so we drive past Westfield, the White City, and you think to yourself, Will people go back? Do people want? And I don't think it's people being scared of shopping. I think, do people want to go into some shopping mall that is effectively full of the same old stores? Whereas what I do think is happening, and I'm really excited about this, is that to me, it's the rebirth of the independence. It's the rebirth of the, the younger 
companies that are actually besotted about giving people a great experience. And therefore, I see a much stronger return to the community of stores rather than the high street of stores, if that makes sense. Uh, Oxford Street is going to have a hell of a time turning round. But I think it's just paid the price for, you know, 10, 15 years of actually a pretty average experience. And it's, and it's just been supported by tourists. And, and when that goes away, it's stripped bare the fact that the experience of going there was a pretty poor one. You, there was no personal service. There was no love. There was no joy in the experience. So, so for me, there's this shift away from the big, the bland, the average to the more discreet, the, the more focused around love of product, love of the experience and the difference rather than the discount within retail. Well said. And certainly your book, Mark, let's touch upon your book, The, the Business Case for Love. I, I've got to say, I absolutely loved it. I really did. I really enjoyed reading it. I think it's it's very honest. You know, it pulls no punches, which is what I really liked. And I think, uh, you know, you, when I say you pull no punches, it, it does highlight organisations that have faltered, which I think is very good. I think it's a very timely book as well. You know, there's been rapid change, hasn't there, in this last 12, 18 months. And, you know, that change, I think, is moving towards a much more purpose-led approach to business. I see lots of companies working really hard to create this meaning, this purposeful kind of experience for not just customers, but employees as well. And coincidentally, it's B Corp month this month, March. So, of course, that's all about balancing profits with people and the planet. But I guess before we get into the book, quick question, why now? Yeah, what prompted you to do the book now then, Mark? Well, do you remember those days when we had a business lunch? <laughs> Back in those Halicone days. Uh, with actual I, I, human beings. With actual human beings. I, I, it was probably about two or three years ago now. But uh, So I was having lunch with one of my dear clients, Louise Barnes, who I'd worked with two or three times and are working with again now. As she's a, the investor director of a really good little uh, online company called Beaufort & Blake. And we were having lunch. And it was a sort of backhanded compliment in a way. She said, I don't really understand why more people aren't beating their the doors down to get to work with you and I suppose I went away and thought about well okay I work for myself I haven't got a massive marketing machine I've done that in a deliberate way how do I get the message out and then that coincided with actually meeting somebody who did know a bit about publishing and actually did have a few contacts with publishers so those two things made me think okay well perhaps Let's get going. Uh, and it was, I think it was less the, to do with, is the time now right for the book? It was more a, a couple of things came together that made me start. And, of course, I did what, as, as, I, as it turned out to do, was everybody supposedly doesn't do. I started by writing the book and actually getting it down on paper, whereas, as I've learned with publishing, I mean, the thing that they do everything off is the proposal. And therefore, it's more like the marketing plan. And the one thing I thought people would do, stupidly, I know, when you submit something is read the book. Right. But no, it did come later on when I did have a publisher. And obviously, they did read it. But it was an eye-opener, that whole experience. Well, I think it's a great book, Mark. And how would you, if you can, how would you summarise the business case for love, you know, in the philosophy? How would you summarise it to people? I, I suppose it came out of what we said a little while ago, which was love was a divisive word. And therefore, I started to build a case around why 
the business case for love mattered. Put very simply, my belief is if you want a, a brilliant, memorable customer experience on the outside, which people love, you need to start with a memorable employee experience on the inside. The company needs to work hard in its culture, its company spirit, its way of working and believing so that actually people love what they do. And perhaps one of the differences to my thinking versus a lot of other companies or consultants was I actually made the absolutely explicit link between the employee experience, the customer experience, and money in the till. And if you get those, if you get those first two things right, the third happens. But in order to get the customer experience right, you need to start with the employee experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Mark, which is why I think it's so timely because so many businesses are really ramping up their efforts in this area, aren't they? You know, we all know the benefits around high employee engagement and we all understand the power of having good kind of powerful customer experiences. But like you say, to create that link and then bring it back to money in the till, so to speak, or all the same if you're a food manufacturer, you know, hitting the bottom line. It's powerful stuff. And why is it important organisations prioritise this stuff Mark, you know, what's the benefit? What's the what's the consequence, I guess, of not doing this? Well, I think that the real driver for change is the employees. And that's one of the things I've really noticed over the last 10 to 12 years through virtually every company I've worked with throughout the world. I, I've seen very common patterns. And that's basically the vast majority of employees, they really want to feel proud of the company they work for, that they want it to have some ethics. They want it to have a sense of purpose. They want it to have a strong culture. And, and therefore, I think that has been one of the real changes that, that people have, that, that are very clear about the environment they're working at. And it's always been there, but I think particularly with the millennials and even more Gen Z, that they want to work in an authentic place. They want to feel good about the company they work for. And Therefore, for me, the driver of this change is actually bottom up. It's the employees who are looking for this. And there are some bosses uh, who, who get this. But equally, it's highlighted, in my opinion, those that, those that don't and, and those, if you like, who have grown up through being good at process and operations and the financial side. But actually, when they get to a leadership position, they, they need to have what I call heart and head. They need to have the ability to operate with empathy, with care and love. They need to work on having a clear sense of purpose because that's what their employees want. What I think is interesting is today's generation, they won't put up with stuff. They won't put up with a toxic culture. We've only got to look at what happened last month with uh, KPMG, which surprised me, I have to say, because you know the professional services, it's always been a bit you know, quiet about this sort of stuff. But Within four days of Bill Michael talking to his team over Zoom and commenting in not a great way, he was gone. And it was the employees who revolted. And it's been interesting that even more recently, that's what's going on at Goldman Sachs, is that people are, are not putting up with a toxic culture. They're not putting up, even if they're earning a ton of money, you know, they're calling it out. 
And I think that's the exciting thing. And it's good for me. It's good that these people are calling it out. And it's good that actually very, very quickly, these dinosaur bosses are being outed and, and literally outed. I'm outed, you know, outed in terms of what they're doing and then out the door. And therefore, there's no hiding place anymore. Yeah. Well, I've said it before on the podcast, Mark, and I'll say it again for me, you know, when you mentioned millennials and Gen Z, it's so true. Actually, their priorities when I talk to them about, you know, what what, what does this unicorn of a role or, or, or what's their priorities? Actually, when, when, when they get to salary and stuff, it's maybe item five or six on the priority list you know up the top is things like working for a business where they're they've got uh, you know shared shared values and they can believe in the purpose uh, of the business it's it's yeah it's it's great i think but certainly there's a there's a lag effect i guess with certain business leaders and it's a really interesting topic isn't it around you know actually an mba can teach you how to read a, a balance sheet but can it can it teach you how to read people? You know, the human element of the organisation. I think it's fascinating. Coming back to your book, Mark, if we picked out just a few principles of, of, of stuff we can share with listeners. Yeah. What, what would you pick out that we could share with people today? I think let's start with the whole idea of take your job hat off and put your customer hat on. And one of the things I try and help my clients do is not think best in category, think best in class. And, and the reason why I do that is, uh, and I have to say, one of the truisms of every client I've worked with, they always are obsessed by the, their immediate competition. Uh, and yet, as customers, we're not. You know, as customers, we actually have this kind of roller deck of experiences in our head. And we judge the experience by what we've been through. And that's not just the immediate competition. This was brought home to me by working with Mercedes, actually, a few years ago in the showroom. It was very physical and visible is that their immediate competition was there. You know, you could see the Audi garage or the Jaguar garage. And therefore, in a way, perhaps they would be obsessed with what they were doing. And as I joke about in the book, you, once somebody had put the balloons out, everybody puts the balloons out because of fear of missing out. Whereas actually as customers, we don't just think about the Audi experience or the Mercedes experience when we're, if we're going to look to buy a car, we think about the airline experience or the hotel experience or the, late, the last time I went to Tesco or how was it with the online chat I had. And you had this backdrop and therefore... One of the things I found is that it's the my going back to the principles is that if you start to ask people what is it they how does a company behave that creates love for them what is it that allows a memorable customer experience for you what you tend to find is a series of behaviours which actually separate best in class and allow those companies that are really winning today to to thrive and they're not it's not strategy it's not strategy it's behavior and so if i just run through the six very quickly the image and experience match which is essentially what you say and what you do is the same thing constantly inside the heads of the customer which is about be out not in go and listen get insight don't sit behind the desk and, and wait for it to come to you experience stuff and really listen to what's going on and how people are feeling Brave yet disciplined, which I always describe as one of the tougher ones, but the confidence to have new ideas, but the discipline to execute it in a way which is in line with your company spirit. Constantly innovating, and this is the big criticism I have at so many businesses, particularly UK retail, which got just stuck in a rut. Constantly innovating, which is about 
And it's very much linked into being inside the heads of the customer, which is the more insights you get, the more ideas you get, the more ideas you get, the more it's about keeping the experience fresh. And then the last two is really about having a mindset of saying, let's start with having creating a memorable customer experience and then work backwards to the product rather than the other way around. Uh, and, and the last one is probably where you and I unite more than anything, which is personal values and company values align, mm. uh, which is this whole idea of, of actually you're looking, to, you're looking for fit, as in cultural fit. And that comes from largely people, in order to love what they do, they need to feel that they're in a company which they, they feel aligned with, so that they actually believe in what it's doing. Uh, and there is something about them, i.e. the individual and the company, that really overlaps, and therefore it becomes a natural fit. And, and I think that last one has become increasingly important over the last 10 years. Yeah, that's really, really interesting, Mark. So how can companies create their own love story or company spirit, as you call it? You know, what sort of things should they start thinking about today? I think, interestingly, it's do they want to be loved? Because not every company does want to be loved. And that's fine. That's a choice. But what is the worst thing is to pretend you want to be loved and actually behave in a very different way, because that backfires both in terms of the employees and the customers. And therefore, uh, my start point, my little matrix I use in the, and I talk about in the books, which is uh, the called the love grid. And it's a very simple noughts and crosses approach to thinking about the link between internal company behavior and the external customer experience and customer relationship. Uh, and at the top, I talk about behaving like a brand. And my definition of behaving like a brand is essentially really working hard at that mix of heart and head, that sense of value, sense of purpose and beliefs aligned to the product price and, and service offer. Uh, and for me, you know, if you get that right, then actually the first start point is for the, their employees to love what they do and the experience becomes a memorable one. Now, it, when people are on that journey and they want to aspire to be at the top, my, my start point actually is to go back to the roots. And by, by going back to the roots, and what I mean by that is getting an understanding of how the company was behaving at its best, it creates something that is real and tangible and authentic which means any vision that the company then starts to think about is, is rooted in reality. It's, it's rooted in something that, that the company has been. It's one of the truisms, if you like, is that one of the sad things about companies when they lose their way is they forget their roots. They forget what made the company successful or famous or loved in the first place. And therefore, by going back, it has a visceral effect on people, particularly because I'm involving uh, large numbers of people in, in creating this story. And for those who have been working there for a long time, often what happens is they start to remember why they worked there in the first place. And secondly, those who have been there for a short time, they've never heard, heard the story before. And therefore, they actually start to understand why was the company the way it is. And for me, I make no apology about this, is, is that the first point in creating love or the company spirit is belief. You need to believe in your company. You need to, it's not about a strategy. You know, it's not about the bottom line. It's, do I believe that the company I'm working for can 
create something fantastic. And it's that emotional side that if you get that right, you then start to drive into the head bit, which is the strategy, is the numbers, it is the product bit, it is the experience. Uh, and for me, so many companies, when they're trying to think about how do they create what all their what I call the company spirit, is they start the wrong way around. They start with the head stuff. Whereas for me, you have to start with the heart stuff. Yeah, it's really powerful stuff, Mark. And I read somewhere recently, and I forget who did the research, but they're saying through recent research, you know, companies who have got, well, purpose-driven businesses outperform the market by 42%. Now, I'll try and find where that piece of research came from, but it's true. I wonder why, and yeah, I'm intrigued to get your opinion on this. Why don't businesses focus on creating this belief, as you describe it, this culture system, which has a knock-on effect around increased productivity because you've got highly engaged employees and to use your words, more money in the till as a result. Why don't more companies focus on this stuff? I, I think for two reasons. I think it, there's a generation of leaders who can't do this because they haven't got the emotional intelligence to be able to do it. But also I'm highly critical of the way private equity and finance works because they all they do is look at the numbers and they never think about the culture. They never think about the people side of it. And this was brought home to me by, there was a period in my company spirit work where I was involved in four turnarounds within 18 months or so, and all very different categories. One was food, one was fashion, one was software, and the other was a bank. And, and what was interesting for me is that three of them had private equity involved. And the story was the same which was the founders, you know, largely go with, with some money in their pocket, which is fine. But what's left is that the spirit of the company that was there to make the company successful in the first place is completely forgotten about uh, because it becomes a numbers game. It becomes a focus on just the numbers. Uh, and my own view is if you ever, if you've focus exclusively on the numbers, you just never get there. And yet, you know, right at this moment, we still have a lot of businesses who are bought and sold, where actually the job is to hit the numbers in three years' time, so therefore the buyout, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it just doesn't work in my mind. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's playing out at the moment with Denon. I don't know if you're keeping an eye on this one yes. with Emmanuel Faber, yeah. who you know is, is well regarded as being at the vanguard of you know purpose-driven business. But from, from what I understand, you know, through activist investors, he's been ousted because they, the, the numbers aren't quite where they want it to be comparatively to their competitors. And it's caused a lot of upset and it's fascinating watching it play out. And it comes back to this point around balancing purpose and profits. And I think you're absolutely spot on. Clearly, you know, there's this need to produce profit and make money. Of course, that's why business exists, but it's doing it in a way that creates, I suppose, these memorable experiences and then doesn't end up being, I don't know, let's focus on someone like a Woolworths or something, which for years, everyone kind of thought, what is this place? <laughs> what is this shop? And there's many other examples, isn't there, which I know you talk about in your book. Yeah, but it's like, uh, it's like James Watt, uh, the founder of Brewdog. I've never met him and therefore I don't write about him because, you know, I only write about the experiences I've had either directly or as a customer or as or somebody I've worked with. But I admire what they're doing there. And if you go onto their website, the values and the principles that they talk about are just so human and they're just so real. And he believes in it. And I think the last 
if I get my numbers right, I think it's now a $2 billion company. And therefore, the ethos that he has created within the beer market just goes to show that if you behave in the right way, actually money in the till does deliver. And he's the perfect example of the employee experience. So he focuses on the employee experience, which leads to the customer experience. And then, you know, that ends up in a successful business. Only over the last couple of days, I've had an example with Hotel Chocolat and another example where, or another company where, to me, they love their product. You know, it's chocolate after all, but they do it in a way where clearly they love what they do. And it's, from my mind, the way they operate and with Angus Thurwell as the founder and CEO, who I was lucky enough to hear speak a couple of years ago, who is, you know, he's a visionary guy and he really believes in what he's trying to do. So he believes in creating an ethos. So you are getting these examples of businesses which are succeeding, but it starts with leadership. It starts with people recognizing that this way of working does work. You know, I was struck with, I mean, it's a very good example for me in the height of the pandemic last year when travel was just collapsing. And there were two distinct examples of how to deal with a 25% cut in your workforce. One was British Airways and one was Airbnb. And Brian Chesky, as the founder of Airbnb, went out of his way to talk about love and belonging to the organization and stressing that the reason people were going was not because they weren't any good. It was because they're focusing back. He actually used the phrase, we've got to go back to our roots. We've got to go back to the to our core products and build out from there again. Whereas British Airways, people found out about on the news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And just to take you back, you mentioned Hotel Chocolat. Yeah, I agree. Great business. And they did a fascinating documentary a couple of years ago, Mark. I don't know if you saw that. It was a real inside view on the internal workings of the business. But it reminds me of news that's broke recently around Thornton's and the Thornton's store. And there's a really good illustration of one business that, you know, are in and around the same product group, but one business getting it really right in terms of the experience you go when you go into a store, the experience, and then the other one that just hasn't quite got it right. And actually the writing's been on the wall for Thornton's for a couple of years now, and no doubt the pandemic has affected them, but actually it's a perfect illustration of what you're talking about. I mean, I really enjoy going into a hotel chocolate store because it's a great experience, isn't it? But it's leadership. I mean, I don't know Thornton's, but that was a family firm. You know, that back in the day was a family firm. So you you would imagine that there was a spirit to it. There was an energy. There was some creativity. And I'm sure it went down the good old private equity route, which ultimately took all of that away. And it just becomes a shadow of what it is. And, and therefore, it's those businesses that are suffering. And it's always sad because the employees involved really got nothing to do with this. You know, they're just they're just there. It's leadership and, and it's desire and it's ambition. And it's what type of company do I want to have? Yeah. And, and those that actually wake up in the morning and say, you know, I want to have a company that's built around a clear sense of purpose and beliefs. Those are the ones that are winning. Yeah. And you talk about leadership and, and the, the principles behind good leadership in your bookmark. So yeah, let's talk about that. Share with us a little bit around, in your opinion, of what does good leadership look like in in today's um, modern era? Well, I suppose perhaps not surprisingly, it's, it's an emphasis on the human side of leadership. Uh, and therefore, 
you know, I, I talk about in the same way as I have six best-in-class company behaviors, I have six best-in-class leadership behaviors. Uh, I've mentioned one already, which is this whole idea of leading with the heart and following in the head. It, leading with the heart, though, is about saying, I, I need to focus on the human side of the business. And if I get that right, then the practical or the process side of the business will follow in a better way. I talk about giving, not taking, and, and giving, not taking is about giving out. It's what, frankly, you're doing now, you know, which is you're giving by doing these podcasts. You're giving something out to your audience. You're, you're creating something of interest. You're not asking for a fee for people to do this. You're saying, you know, come and enjoy something and get, get some insights and, mm. and perspectives from this range of people that you've invited, including me. I talk about being self-aware, uh, and I think that one of the interesting things about but the best leaders know that they're not brilliant at everything. You know, they know their strengths and they know their weaknesses. And, and I reference here sports teams in a way because they're very good, obviously, at, at knowing how to create a team. You know, people have got different skills. You've got different players on the pitch that need to gel together. And it's the same with a leader. They need to understand what they're good at and what they're not good at and then balance their team Accordingly, I talk about goal orientated, not task orientated. And I think that's something that actually in many ways is the definition between a lead leadership and management, because actually good leadership for me, they understand you've got to keep sight on the goal. You've got to understand what you're doing. And so many leaders end up managing tasks. You know, they get overwhelmed by the daily tasks and, for, and forget the goal. And they, you know, they stand up once a year and say, here's our strategy and here's our objectives. And then for the next 365 days, spend all the days on, spend all their time worrying about the tasks. And the other side I talk about, which again is the human side, is communicate to engage. You know, tell stories. Uh, you know, when you present and you talk and share, you know, I, I hate powerpoints with a vengeance because i think they're lazy and and they, they, people can hide behind them and the best leaders they stand up on stage i mean they'll be brilliantly rehearsed i'm obviously the most famous of all with steve jobs and i really can't get through a whole podcast without mentioning him who was one of the best business presenters but as anybody knows planned 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 that presentation so it felt live and it was live, but he thought through everything he was going to do. But it came across as a story. It came across as a way of engaging the audience. And I think that's one of the things that I find with leadership. And I talk about what I call being on stage all of the time. And actually, it's not the metaphorical being on stage at the company event that counts. It's being on stage every day and recognizing that their employees are looking at you all of the time judging what you're doing and how you're behaving and are you living the strategies you know that you talked about or are you living those values that you've said we've got and if you're not you get called out yeah yeah it's fascinating stuff when you talk about storytelling mark just yesterday i was on a great conference event with a company called the purpose collective and i can't recommend them highly enough but they were talking about storytelling and how pivotal it is as a leader today to you know not saying that you know creating your point or argument around logic doesn't still exist. Of course it does, but engaging the right 
right hemisphere of the brain around emotion and storytelling is a really powerful way of influencing and bringing people on that journey with you. And I think, yeah, the great leaders I see, of course, they can balance the books, they can read a P&L sheet, you know, all that sort of great stuff. But actually what they're really fundamentally good at is influencing and storytelling and taking people on that journey, which is really, as you say, about that emotional connection. And and maybe that hasn't been so true in the past, but now I can see it clearly within a lot of leaders today. I'm sure you do as well. I, I think the other aspect is curiosity, actually, is that sense of actually wanting to get out and see what's going on. And I think that's one of the difficulties a lot of leaders have is they, they get stuck. You know, they just they stop doing anything. They, they, so they're not curious. They're not interested in finding out new things. They're not interested in listening to Jonathan's podcasts or reading books or going to new places or having new experiences or talking to different people. They think they know it all and therefore they themselves get stuck. And I think curiosity is a leadership quality that certainly in my experience has always been every one of my clients that I've worked with over the last 12 years has in some way been curious enough to actually want to understand and embrace the business case for love. Yeah. Yeah. I think I I couldn't agree more. I think curiosity, it comes back to people, you know, we used to talk about ego, didn't we? And leaving the ego at the door. And I think it taps into that being humble, not having an ego, like you say, not thinking, you know, it all. I think curiosity is such a a powerful thing to, to have. Well, listen, just drawing to a close, Mark, a few questions uh, for you, if I may. I mean, the impact of COVID, what have you learned about yourself in the last 12 months then, Mark? Anything kind of unexpected, any unexpected positives you'll take away from this turbulent time? Funny after one thing, it's proved to me what I really miss. And what I really miss is meeting people. And, you know, the Zooms are right. And I look forward to the time when you and I can have a beer in a pub garden somewhere between here and Oxfordshire and probably meet up. So I've missed that human side. I've missed the, and in terms of my work, I can do things on Zoom. I can do some you know, some online events, but it's just not the same as actually having a group of people in the room that you can connect with and read the room. It comes back to the ability to read the room. I, I think, you know, like everybody, you you have to dig deep. And I suppose what, what's been good for me, frankly, is having the book come out, even though it was a bit weird having it come out in the in the middle of a pandemic because you can't do the normal things that you're going to do and therefore you have to work hard at saying well how am I going to get this message out and and therefore you know the good thing for me is I actually had that to to love and cherish uh, to keep me occupied when I couldn't physically go and meet people. Mm, absolutely and we we talked off air didn't we about the the feedback you've had which has been great and and I can't recommend your book highly enough it, it I guess it's just really well written and it's crafted in such a way that just really resonates Mark I, I can't recommend the book highly enough whether you're in retail whether you're just in other areas of business or, or life I just think the principles are fantastic I really do and just with your career itself Mark you know you've achieved a lot what do you believe the kind of key traits attributes have been to help you be successful? I think the key thing is to have a point of view. And I mean, it's interesting that we go back to my, you know, nearly mad men days, 30 years or so since I worked in advertising, but that decade shaped a lot of how I think about and believe in. And, and ultimately 
it, it sort of taught me that you need to have a point of view. And I think sadly, so many people end up not having a point of view. You know, they end up scared to actually say something that's different, scared of actually putting their head above the parapet. So I think for me, it's having the confidence to have a point of view. And, and actually, interestingly, I suppose as I've got older, I've got stronger in that feeling. Uh, and that ultimately has been epitomized by writing the book and the philosophy and the approach that I've developed as the business case for love. Yeah, interesting. And what's your inspiration, Mark? You know, what's your what's your why? I think funny enough, it's everything I can't do now. So it's travel, it's the physical experiences of doing new things, it's being curious, it's the ability to go out and meet new people. I do, I mean, it sounds a bit sycophantic and I don't mean it to be this way. I, I do get an awful lot of, out of the clients I've worked with and quite a lot of them have become good friends of mine over the years because I, what I really enjoy is the fact that every client I go to or every company I go to is different. And I've worked in a huge variety of different categories. And whilst actually, ironically, many of the issues are the same, what I've really enjoyed is the ability to go in and not try and understand the business fully, because that's not my role, but to actually understand the energy behind the way people work and actually how I can connect how some organizations work over here with how other organizations work over there and what are the lessons that can be learned from both. Well, the work you do, Mark, I imagine similarly to me, you are impacting people's lives and that's powerful, isn't it? You get energy from that. You know, the stuff you do is, you know, you're creating a huge change, behavioral change within organizations. And, and that must be such a good feeling. Yes. I mean, actually, it's, it's interesting you say that because I'm obviously like anybody there's a commercial side to what I do, but the emotional reward I get from seeing belief created on people's faces as they go through a company spirit event, it's just amazing. And, you know, I guess it's my equivalent of what it must feel like to be a rock star when you're up there playing something and the audience is singing along. You know, it's different. But, I mean, what you're getting is you're seeing that visceral reaction in people's faces. And there's huge emotional reward that comes from that. Yeah. Well, the good news, Mark, we're not far away now. You'll be back on those on that stage under the <laughs> under the spotlights, hopefully very soon. And well, listen, Mark, thanks so much for investing the time with me today. There's a huge amount of value in there, I think, for a, a lot of different people. If people want to reach out to you, Mark, what, what's the best way? How should they drop you a line? Well, actually, I think the best way is LinkedIn, you know, which I'm quite active on. So connecting via that way, I mean, my email is markcox at thecompanyspirit.com. That's M-A-R-C-C-O-X at thecompanyspirit.com. So that's another way. But I, I enjoy, the advantage of going via LinkedIn is that people can read some of the articles and posts I do so you can get a flavor of, of uh, what I believe in. And, and that's, for, for me, the best way. Yeah, perfect. And I'll, I'll pop in the notes mark a link to your book your superb book if people are interested to pick a copy up and listen i'm going to hold you to that beer at some point in the summer and i, I just wish you all the best for the future and, and let's keep in touch no I th well, thank you very much and i think the interesting thing i mean i do my little graham norton book for the uh, plug for the book now and as much it's now an audio book which is quite exciting it's been on kindle and is a hardback but actually comes out as a paperback next month as well so there's actually four formats 
which is all terribly exciting. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <Too much> choice. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. And uh, yeah, let's, let's uh, catch up again very soon. All right. Take care, Jonathan. Have a good weekend. Bye. Cheers, Mark. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you found this episode valuable. Now, whether you're a person interested in developing your own career to the next level, or perhaps you're a business leader who genuinely believes in the importance of hiring the very best people in the very best way, then you can always get in touch with me via the email links in the show notes. Also, don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episode as it's released. Until next time, take care.